Thursday, May 5th. How are you? It's a warm one today, warm one here in Salford. Welcome to the programme. It is myself, Richie Allen, the BBG, with you till 7 o'clock. Thank you for finding me. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Ramola D is a good friend of mine and has been for some years. She's a very, very good investigative journalist. She is a poet, a writer, a broadcaster. You might be aware that a couple of weeks back, Ramola was involuntarily detained at a psychiatric facility in Massachusetts. She believes that it was directly connected to the work she does. It's a very important story, this. We'll talk to Ramola D a little bit later this hour. Don't miss that. Before that, lots to talk about. There's always lots to talk about. You and me, you can reach out to the programme. Oh, God, the cliches there. Vomiting forth. You can contact me via richieallen.co.uk my website it's simple comment live I will read the comments out as we go along you might have something you'd like to contribute when Ramola joins the programme please do so it's Thursday's programme May 5th and as I said it was warm some game last night in Madrid eh few long faces around this morning I don't mind telling you Salford does have a few City fans. You can count them on two hands, I think, but I saw one or two. It's not exclusively Manchester United here. Moss side would have been pretty grim this morning, but look, take it from a Manchester United fan who has nothing, nothing to smile about when it comes to football. Tis only a game. Tell yourself that over and over again. Now, the Bank of England has warned that the economy in this country is going to shrink. It raised interest rates. It raised rates from 0.75% to 1% today. So it's now at the highest level since 2009. It's also the fourth time in a row the bank has raised interest rates since December. So inflation is at its highest for 30 years. You are probably experiencing that. If you're like me, meaning that you're not rich, you'll understand that things are getting exponentially more expensive. It's very difficult. So the BBC writes inflation at its highest for 30 years is set to breach 10% by the end of the year. So fuel, energy and food costs soaring partly due to the war in Ukraine, but also due to the scamdemic, the pandemic scamdemic. Says the BBC, as a result, people are reining in their spending, which is hitting growth, Okay, So the bank has raised interest rates again, it says, to try to contain the rising cost of living. But this is counterproductive, of course, because it's going to make borrowing more expensive for people, Uh, It's not going to do much to bring down prices and it really is going to hit those with the least savings, those with the least to fall back on in society. 
So the Bank of England said inflation should hit 9% in the coming months, up from its previous forecast of 8%. It said the impact of the Ukraine war on energy, household energy prices, was largely to blame following the increase in the energy price cap in April and a further expected increase in October, which might push household bills up to around £2,800 a year. Okay, consumers facing higher prices for food, for goods and for services. Problem is, you see, as a result of what the Bank of England has done today, about 2 million people in this country, or 2 million homeowners, will see a pretty swift increase in their monthly mortgage repayments. And loans will be getting more expensive as well. So that's a disaster, really. You see, wages are not rising with the increasing rate of inflation, which is, of course, driven by the scamdemic and the criminal decisions made by governments during the scamdemic. And now, of course, the manufactured Ukraine war. Now, this is purely conjecture. It's only my opinion. I can't prove it, but I do not believe that Vladimir Putin is acting independently and in Russia's geopolitical interest. It appears that way, but I don't believe it. I believe it's a chess move, and I say that because I believe he has his bosses too. And that ultimately, if we, you and me, and everybody else, are to be driven to the great reset reality, you will own nothing, you will be happy. Um, Take Ukraine, COVID, the inflation, recessions, and the resulting wealth grabs. Because that's what happens, you see, when banks raise interest rates, when people can no longer afford to pay for things. They lose those things they can't pay for any longer. They are grabbed by banks and sold off to vulture funds. So everything, Ukraine, COVID, all of this, inflation, recession, the wealth grabs, it all suits the Great Reset Agenda or World Order 2.0 Agenda. Poverty is the future. It's meant to be. Um, for people who never imagined it could happen to them. Remember we spent some time talking about this in the last couple of years, particularly early, early on in the scandemic. How bewildered people were who had never had the government interfering, or at least they didn't, didn't think that governments were interfering in their lives. Shocked at what the government did and what the government could do. So poverty is the future. Can't pay your bills, can't afford food, you can't afford services, you can't even get a loan, or you can, but at a much higher cost. You default and you lose any tangible assets you have. And I believe, well I know in my bones, that it is deliberate. But that's just my opinion. It's uh, seven minutes past the hour. It's Thursday's Richie Allen Show. Right, wait for this then. Um, the World Health Organization is claiming that the COVID scamdemic, we call it scamdemic, don't we, you and me? It's not our phrase, but we call it that. Let's, let's do it properly. Let's do it straight. The World Health Organization is claiming that the COVID pandemic has killed around 15 million people globally and that many countries actually undercounted the numbers of COVID deaths. Let's stick with the BBC, which reports the World Health Organization believes 
Many countries undercounted the numbers who died from COVID. And then it says only 5.4 million were reported. Okay, so officially, globally, 5.4 million people died from COVID. Now, I think that's bollocks. You think that's bollocks. It's nowhere near that. But let's play it straight. So the WHO believes the 5.4 million figure is is unsound because countries were under-reporting. And then it says in India, it is claimed there were 4.7 million COVID deaths. Now the World Health Organization says it's probably... Hang on a second, let me get that straight. Yeah, in India... The World Health Organization says there were 4.7 million COVID deaths, 10 times the official figures, and almost a third of COVID deaths globally. So in India, they said 470,000. The World Health Organization says they're lying or they undercounted. It's more like 4.7 million and globally 15 million in total. Fuck off. What? Fuck off. That's what I thought. 15 million. Start again. The World Health Organization believes that COVID has killed 15 million people globally. What? (laughs) Boy, I heard some whoppers in my time, but that tops them all. (laughs) Yeah, 15 million. So the BBC invited on a woman called Devi Shridhar. She's a global health policy academic from University Edinburgh or Edinburgh University. This woman has been on television a lot in the last two years. So she came on to explain this figure. 15 million died from COVID. You will hear the interviewer first. Then you will hear Devi Shridhar. Professor, welcome to BBC News. Um, I was really taken by these numbers. So the reported figures, five and a half million excess deaths. The WHO says it's 15 million. That is a huge difference. It is. So the estimates from the WHO actually look at what were deaths in the pre-pandemic times, based on that, what will we expect in 2020 and 2021, and actually how many deaths do we expect had happened and are due directly to COVID-19 or from other causes where people couldn't get care because COVID was taking up healthcare resources. Um, Now, there are some stark differences as well in which countries were seemingly under-reporting India, for example, 10 times. Um, What does that tell us about their global response to this pandemic? Right the global response? Well, I think what we're first seeing is because there have been comparisons across countries in terms of death rates, politicians are keen for them to look lower because then they can say we've done better, where I think scientists and the WHO are keen to have an accurate estimate of how many people have suffered because of this pandemic. And I think what we have to think is how many can we prevent going into the future? Where, how do we get vaccines to all parts of the world? And we know there are still major vaccine inequalities between places which are giving fourth boosters and places in the world which still are trying to give out first doses. So I think that's where we should really be spending energy. So when we look at 2022, many of these deaths could be prevented going into the future. Yeah. What can we do in the future to prevent 15 more million people dying from COVID or from a future pandemic? 
Let's have a bit more. I mean, there's a saying in public health, which is if you don't count it, then it doesn't matter. And I think here what we're trying to do is put numbers to this that we can see that each life matters. Each life matters. Now, he should jump in, of course. The BBC presenter should jump in and say, listen, love, there was a study published by Oxford University in March. It was peer-reviewed. And it seemed to suggest that the official death figures may be completely and utterly unreliable. Because... Well, they were assigning COVID to the death certificates of people that were in hospital dying of heart problems, kidney problems, strokes, God knows what, cancers, uh, people who'd been knocked down and were on life support machines. So, 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 so maybe you might want to think about that, but he doesn't. How many of these deaths could have been prevented? How do we do better next time? And even at this moment, the pandemic isn't over in all parts of the world. How do we actually try to save lives from this day forward and to, to avoid this major toll? And it's worth saying, I know comparisons have been made off into the flu, but in an average year, flu deaths are around 300 to 600,000 globally. So we can see COVID-19 is a much more serious event and really the largest pandemic since 1918. The largest pandemic since 1918. Yes, um, and I wonder too where the UK... Yes, he says. This guy's got no questions whatsoever for Devi Shridhar. UK fits into this global picture as well. And what does it tell us about our response to that crisis? Because there was a lot of criticism, wasn't there, that we focus on specific numbers and death tolls and infection rates. But that was so important in, in being able to monitor the spread of this crisis. Yeah, I think it was very important to have surveillance and before surveillance before we had widespread vaccination, actually testing was our main tool to break chains of transmission and make sure that we weren't having infection spreading. Taking a wave of infections without vaccines is absolutely devastating, as we saw in the first and second waves. So I think right now what we have to look at is could the UK do better going forward if the same thing were going to happen again? What would we learn? Could we get testing up and going faster? What kind of measures could we put in place to protect those who are most vulnerable, the elderly, those with underlying health issues? And the real issue now with the NHS is making sure enough investment is made in the staff who are all burned out. But also We're all burned out. Also in the resources so that care can be provided for all conditions, because we know there's also been other issues that such as delayed cancer diagnosis, which are you know, affecting many people's lives. But the issue is that the NHS needs more resources. It's very limited right now. Right. So she brought it up, right, that the unavailability of medical services because the NHS became a COVID service, that drastically impacted on people's lives. Now, she didn't say drastically. She opened the door for the journalist, the presenter, to ask her, well, how many people died because they couldn't get access to medical treatment due to lockdowns? But he didn't. This is what he says next. Um, it's really good to have your thoughts on this. Uh, it's a really interesting study, isn't it? Uh, wow. Professor Devi Sridhar, Chair of Global Public Health at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I yeah, wonderful. So, realistically, he should have asked her, what about the people who died, suicide, strokes, cancers, everything else because they couldn't get treatment? But he could have also asked her about the March publication from Oxford University and Collateral Global which found that there were 14 different terms being used to describe someone who died with COVID in the last two years, including underlying COVID, involving COVID, due to COVID, and died within either 28 or 60 days of a positive test. See, that was his job, 
to say the 15 million figure from the WHO is absolute nonsense, isn't it, Professor Sridhar? This is proven to be nonsense. Not only the Telegraph newspaper, not only Oxford University, not only the Times of London, but the New York Times in the last two years have said that the way that um, someone had COVID assigned to their death certificate was, was dodgy to say the least. It's what he should have done, but he didn't do it. It's remarkable, really, when you think about it. He also could have mentioned to her, but I don't think a single legacy media outlet has mentioned that um, on Tuesday, 80,000 more documents were released as per the order of a federal judge in the United States. Uh, Pfizer documents relating to the trial of its own COVID jab were released and they make terrifying reading not just for pregnant women, not just for lactating women, but also for anybody who might want to take one. Because some analysts are suggesting that in Pfizer's own trial, maybe as many as one in 30 trial participants who did have adverse events. It's important you make that distinction. Not one in 30 of everybody who took part in the trial but one in 30 of those who had adverse events or who had side effects from the jab actually died. He could have mentioned that to Devi Shridhar, but he didn't bother his hairy arse. That's the state of journalism in 2022. The time is 17 and a half minutes past five. I'm Richie Allen. Welcome to The Richie Allen Show. Now, guess who's back on the BBC? It's very BBC-centric is this monologue. It's only Billy Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft and the CEO. No, he isn't. He, <laughs> he, 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 he is the one half of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's back in the news, opining on pandemics, on climate change and other things, even though he doesn't have a single academic qualification to justify his invitation to discuss these matters on national media. Keep that in mind now. You're going to listen to Billy, Billy Gates, and right hand to God, I swear on the Bible, Billy Gates has a helium balloon addiction. It's plagued him since childhood. Just listen to him. Breaking news, Microsoft co-founder addicted to helium balloons. Right, so the fearless journalist, Michelle Hussein, asked the psychotic Billy Gates if, in his opinion, there will be another pandemic. Well, the risk is there every year and definitely going up as people travel around the world more, as climate change causes species to seek new habitats. Climate change causing species to seek new places to live. People travelling around the world makes it risky. As population growth, particularly in Asia and Africa, means that we're invading more natural habitats. Uh, Do you hear that? In Asia and Africa, people are giving birth to, to babies that are surviving more. And um, they'll need to seek out new places to live to cope with that. So population growth is a problem too. It's very unlikely that we'll go 20 more years without another outbreak that has a chance of becoming a global pandemic. Very unlikely we'll uh, go 20 years. So within the next two decades, it's a good chance we'll have another global pandemic. 
This is Billy Yates. Which is sobering and which is a hard thing to think about at a point psychologically when there's a joy in getting back to the things that we couldn't do for such a long period. But you essentially want us all to think really hard about preparing for the next one, which is kind of a tough ask at a time like this. No, definitely. And, you know, this pandemic's not completely over. We could have a surprise variant. A surprise variant. <laughs> I don't think that's high probability. Uh, but yes, people are ready for this one to end. No doubt. I want, at any stage, did it occur to Michelle Hussein that Bill Gates is a computer geek? A total fuckwith who can barely tie his own shoelaces. Did it occur to her to say to him, who are you to be speaking on this particular subject with such authority? Where did you go to university, Billy? No doubt. Uh, hopefully they keep in mind how awful it's been so that we take the reasonably modest measures. Ah, keep in mind how bad it was for you in the last two years, how bad it was for you and your family, how bad the lockdowns were, so that when we propose reasonably moderate measures, next time you'll take them. It's important to hear that again. Uh, hopefully they keep in mind how awful it's been so that we take the reasonably modest measures uh, that are required to reduce the chance of it happening again. I'm going to labour this point again and again. It bears labouring. Your qualifications are, Bill, please. Bill? Which are spending on practice, on, on modelling, on proper sort of active preparedness. These are the moderate measures. Yeah, practice would be key and having a dedicated team that helps manage that practice uh, and make sure that every little outbreak gets quick investigation, uh, including genetic sequencing, so we can understand, uh, is this a respiratory virus that's threatening uh, to become another COVID. And, and on COVID itself, the, the thing you just hinted at, that it, it, I think you're saying that the, is it possible that the worst is even yet to come if we get a, a new, more dangerous variant than what we've seen? Not likely. Um, you know, we have a lot of immunity. The variants escape some of that immunity. Um, particularly if we get the elderly to keep up to date on boosters, then the amount of severe disease and death is is dramatically less. Uh, so, and and your qualifications again to talk about the efficacy of booster shots in the senior citizens of the world, Bill. Where are you getting that from, Bill? Did you do the research yourself? Something we don't know about your background. Did you go to Berkeley, Bill? Did you go to Harvard? What degrees do you have, Bill? Oh, you know, I... And she sits there and allows him get away with this. We can't completely ignore uh, this pandemic. You don't have to be rude, you see. You don't have to go... Jeremy Paxman or even that absolute twat uh, Piers Morgan. You just destroy him with calm, rational questions and you don't allow him to, uh, to waffle. You don't. You just say, no, no, go back to that. Wh where did you study epidemiology and virology to justify speaking with such authority on the subject, Bill? It's as simple as that. That's all it takes. Um, but we don't yet have tools like where you take the vaccine once 
and you're protected for life and it stops you from getting infected. That's the kind of tool that we need uh, to really put this behind us and uh, for future pandemics. And for future pandemics. She's got nothing to say, this girl. Do you think any of the kind of preparedness you'd like to see is really going on as you look around the world now? Well, the idea of building a global group uh, that I call germ for... Listen to this. This is really interesting now. This is the nub of why the BBC chose to send Michelle Hussein from Radio 4 to go and speak to Billy Gates, this new group that he's founded, uh, to tackle future global pandemics. That I call germ for... Germ. For global epidemic uh, response and mobilisation at that WHO level... There isn't yet a consensus, but the debate is beginning. My book, uh, I think, will help kick off that debate. I'd love to see in the next year that funded because the uh, cost is pretty small. And yet that's kind of the central group that will make sure we practice uh, and have dramatically less impact. What did you think about... Novak Djokovic. She's shit, isn't she? She's absolutely shit, that presenter, that journalist, Hussein. That was, uh, she had to take it down uh, the road there of germ. She had to take it down that road. Um, again, what gives you the qualifications to be putting together initiatives to, to uh, prepare a global response, basically transcending governments and you know, independent states, independent nations, their right, their autonomous right to decide for themselves how to approach dealing with a pandemic. Who the fuck are you, Bill? You, you know, uh, wanting to take the responsibility for dealing with health issues away from elected governments in countries around the world. Who the hell are you? And who are these partners? Who are these people you're talking about? in germ. But then she asks him about Novak Djokovic. Djokovic saying that he wasn't vaccinated because it's essentially about his freedom of choice and the choice of what he puts in his body. I wonder if you think that when someone is in the public eye, is there a wider responsibility than just that of your own body? What do you think, you daft bint? What do you think he's going to say? So Novak Djokovic, then just in case you don't know, one of the most successful tennis players of all time, was banned from playing in January's Australian Open because he refused, he has refused to have a COVID jab or at least he has said it's his own business and that he thinks very carefully about what he puts in his body. And of course he's a healthy, young, incredibly fit athlete who doesn't need a COVID jab no more than you do or I do. So what did Billy have to say then about Novak Djokovic, do you think? Well, my life is, is very different. My Hang on. What did he say? Well, being vaccinated helps the community you're in. They're not perfect at blocking infection. They're not perfect at blocking infection now. Uh, but they do reduce infection. And so it's unfortunate if somebody's health concerns are so extreme. What? What did you say about his health concerns again there, Billy? Health concerns are so extreme. Extreme. A jab that you rushed out, you rushed it out because you created it. You gave the seed money, most of it or a lot of it, to organisations to um, to create it. So he doesn't want to take a chance with a jab that was rushed into being 
in months, a process that normally takes years, particularly after he found out the clotting issues with AstraZeneca, the problems with the Pfizer jab, and he's the extreme one, is he? Uh, that they feel they can't participate in that community protection if they're... Cheer up, participate in that community protection. These are important phrases. This is phraseology that I think we are going to be hearing a lot more of in the coming months and years. Because this guy, while this is not his agenda, he's just another puppet, but he is above your governmental puppets. You know, he's above that level on the pyramid. It's not his agenda, but he is a driver of it and a manager of it for other entities. There's no doubt about that, other people. But these are interesting phrases. Participate. Participate in, in that community um, protection. Participate. It's a shame he doesn't want to participate in that community uh, protection. If somebody's health concerns are so extreme uh, that they feel they can't participate in that community protection. Imagine you're the extreme one if you don't want to take a chance with a job you don't need. If they're an inspirational and trusted person, you know, then if they're spreading that, um, it just makes it tougher to get the vaccination levels that we really need. Um, you know, so... Uh, so what? You know, I admire him in a lot of ways, but I wish his views on vaccines weren't, uh, weren't uh, that way. Mm. She then went, went on to ask him about his divorce and he answered the question on his divorce and I want to skip past uh, that bit because she asked him then about comments made by his ex-wife uh, concerning Jeffrey Epstein. Let's see where we are on that clip. I didn't mark it. She seemed to have seen something in Jeffrey Epstein on the occasion that she met him that you didn't in your meetings with him. Is that right? She said that she said that she met him once and as soon as she walked in the door, she felt he was abhorrent and evil personified. The only half-decent question she asked in the interview, his response? Uh, you know, I made a mistake ever meeting with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, you know, maybe her instincts on that were keener than mine, but... Gates met him after he'd been convicted for pedophilia. But, you know, I, uh, any meeting I have with them you know, could be viewed as almost condoning his evil behavior. So, uh, you know, that was that was a mistake. Yeah, Gates, thank you very much. And that was it. Yeah, you we, we do take it that you condoned his evil behavior by meeting him. No businessman in the position of Bill Gates with the scrutiny Gates I say scrutiny. It's really only from the independent media. But um, nobody would meet with Jeffrey Epstein knowing that Epstein was a convicted paedophile. But Billy Gates did. Bill Gates speaking to the BBC's Michelle Hussein. The time is 29 minutes to 6 o'clock, so it is. Here's a tune from Duran Duran. A little bit more news headlines when I come back. Ramola D joins me in around 15 minutes time. It's Thursday's Richie Allen Show with Richie Allen. Duran, Duran and Ordinary World, I'd give anything right now for a pint of harp and some crew beans. Harp and crew beans. 
It's uh, 25 minutes to 6. The Richie Allen Show broadcasting live from BBG Towers in Salford. Thanks for your comments. Alan says Maria Eagle, the Labour MP, had no answer for him when he asked her why Gates is the go-to guy re uh, vaccines and public health. Is it just the wonga, asks Alan. Is it the money? He says he put it to Eagle, the Labour MP. You do know he is a eugenicist, right? Doesn't that bother you? Eagle didn't respond. Thank you, Alan. Ian says Gates would have fit in quite well at the 1C conference. Uh, Chris reminds us that Epstein died. He did die, as far as we know. Hoffman says vaccines are a central plank of all of the sustainable development goals. Thanks for that. Angela says Gates is insane. He might, he might well be. He might well be. I don't know that, but he might be. Craig says the germ group isn't a name that inspires confidence. Certainly isn't. It says to me, says Craig, we are the germs, but maybe that is just me. Angela came back on to say, you might be right, Angela, but I believe, she says, maybe I'm wrong, but I now believe that computer viruses were so called to put that word in our minds and connect them to Gates as though he knows about such things. I tell you what, Angela, stranger things have turned out to be, you know, turned out to be true, really. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Uh, Shambhala says, Billy Gates, a gruff is trolling again. Bren says, I don't consent to that evil Gates having any input into my health or to my life. Feg off and leave us alone, says Bren. And from the Holy Spirit, uh, do not harm any one of us. The Holy Spirit sees you and all global supposed leaders as evil and damned. Repent, says Bren. I wouldn't hold my breath. Ian says, why is Hussein interviewing Kermit the Frog? Does Sesame Street have a microbiology department now? <laughs> Told you he's got an addiction to helium balloons. That's, that's, that's it. I broke that news. And David brings up the TuneIn app again. Let me just explain very briefly. I don't want to spend any time on this. Uh, but one or two of you on uh, Facebook particularly, you seem to misunderstand what the TuneIn app, what TuneIn.com is. It doesn't host podcasts. TuneIn is a live radio station streaming app, meaning that uh, when I'm live, you can hear it live on TuneIn.com, or at least you could until they deleted the station yesterday morning. So uh, it's kind of a big deal. In the short term, it puts a huge dent in the numbers of listeners listening live to the programme, because the majority of people listening to the programme live were listening through TuneIn. Tens of thousands of people every single day. Live, right? It's not a podcast app. It's a live radio. It, it hosts thousands of radio stations. It has 75 million monthly users and it deleted the show. When listeners complained to uh, tune in on Twitter, it said, the company said, that somebody had complained about the programme and TuneIn referred the listener back to me as if I have any idea. 
This is the crazy, sinister, sickening, horrible world that I'm getting pretty fucking tired of living in, to be honest. And don't worry, there isn't anything wrong with my mental health. I'm not going to do anything silly, apart from have a few drinks later on. I'm getting tired of it. Not for me, because I don't give a shit anymore. I just don't. And because I'm independent, I'm, I'm a self-employed guy, but I'm getting sick of the reality that this can happen to people and they don't get any satisfaction from the companies that do it. Namely, who made the fucking complaint? Who? And what was it that party said? At least give me that much so that I might make a, an explanation that might satisfy you and that might um, prevent you from deleting the show which has been there for eight years now. But this is the reality. It's happening to people. I don't mean it's happening to people in the independent media. It's happening to people in the private sector. It's happening to people in jobs, losing their jobs because of Chinese whispers, you know, being accused of bigotry or racism or Islamophobia or anti-Semitism and being summarily fired or not summarily fired, being redistributed or eventually left go, not realising that somebody has had it in for them. This is the world we live in now. PayPal did it. I got the Financial Conduct Authority to go after PayPal for deleting my account. I said, PayPal is my business partner. It's taken 5% of every fucking transaction, of every bit of support that came in to the radio show from 2014 to 2021. It shouldn't have the right to delete my account, to keep the money that was in there, by the way, and basically tell me to fuck off. The Financial Conduct Authority, or I'm giving it the wrong name now, it's not the Financial Conduct Authority, you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, it went to PayPal and PayPal said, oh, um, a complaint was made against him and that's all we can say. We've got to protect the complainant. And they came back to me and said, there's nothing we can do about it. And that's the way that happened six, eight, nine months ago. That's the world we live in now. And it will ultimately do for the Richie Allen show. I know a handful of people really well. I've never had many friends. They know... I've never had a self-pitying bone in my body. I genuinely don't give a shit about this stuff. This is educational stuff. But when I say the Richie Allen show won't be around for much longer, it really won't. And I'll be glad when it's over. I'll be glad for the rest to not be doing it and putting up with that sort of shit, like, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out, newspaper articles, Sky News, all that shit and never getting a chance to take these people on. That's the thing that kills me. There's no self-pity here. It kills me that I can't take them on. All my life I've been confrontational. All my life. Whenever I've had a problem with somebody, I've brought it to their door and said, hey, I've got a fucking problem with you. This is it. What do you say? And sometimes... You sort it out, all oh, right, I got the wrong end of the stick or whatever. This is me, right? Got the wrong end of the stick. No problem. It kills me that these people can get away with it. There's nothing I can do about it. That's the thing that really gets to me. And that's the thing I'm tired of. I mentioned this on the website last night. I'm tired of it. 
I'm really tired with it and I'm nearly done with it. And one of these days, and it's it's been me my entire life. It's been me my entire life. One of these months, I'm going to get to the end of the month and I'm going to finish a show and I'm going to say, look after yourselves and one another. I'm not going to say anything and that will be the end of it. I won't come back. It's how I've walked away from everything I've ever done. Um, it's, it's, it's just a nightmare. Fighting this shit day in, day out while trying to uh, produce, edit and present radio. So um, no self-pity. Uh, it's not about me. It's not just me and this show they're coming after. It isn't. Please don't think it's about me. But after eight years now, yeah, when it does happen, I, I, I'll have made my peace with it. It really is. It's, it's not easy. So yeah, TuneIn is gone. Uh, most of the listeners on TuneIn will just assume the programme is gone and it'll take them some time to try and find it. They might go on the website to try and find it, but people have become so fucking lazy that they don't do that. I saw this when the YouTube channel was deleted. There are still people asking, where's Richie Allen gone? Why did he give up after he was kicked off of YouTube? But I didn't. In fact, two years later, we stuck another YouTube channel on there, which has been blocked um, since. But, but people by nature, and they've become, this is the internet age, they've become lazy. If it isn't pushed at them in their social media feeds, they don't go looking for stuff. And that's the problem. So the, so the tune-in deletion is a problem. And in the short term, it's going to play, uh, it's going to be interesting in terms of the listening figures for the live show, which were outrageous. Um, outrageous. Last week... Tuesday, Wednesday, more than 300,000 people listening at 6 o'clock at the top of the air, the busiest time for the show. And that's, of course, the reason they've gone after this show. There's not another show in the world that does that sort of traffic. Uh, there never has been. And uh, they don't like it. And, and that's fair enough. But I can't get to them. Maybe you can help me out. Maybe you can figure out for me how I can get to these people. And I don't mean get to them, as in physically, but I mean, how do I get these people? How do I get them to acknowledge? How do I get them to atone for, for what it is they're doing to people? Deleting people and cancelling people. It isn't just me. There are thousands more saying we've had a complaint, but you don't get to face your accuser. You're gone. And that's the end of it. So that's it. Mini rant over. Mini rant over. Um... Yeah, keep the messages coming through. It's richieallen.co.uk. And Ramola D, speaking of, speaking of what I've... To, to, to carry on further to what I've just been speaking about, Ramola D, who I've known for some years and I find to be very sincere, and I, I, I'm pretty sure is a, an, you know, a very truthful person, was basically sectioned that's a term we use here in the UK. It's the Mental Health Act sectioned, locked up for her own safety. Uh, she believes uh, because of what it is that she's been doing and saying. And uh, you might remember, I don't know if you do remember, um, we had an amazing live show about three and a half, four years ago 
when during the afternoon I was preparing a show on a Tuesday afternoon and a lady reached out to me on Facebook called Susanna Small, a lovely woman. Lovely, lovely, lovely woman. Gentle, intelligent, articulate, decent. And she said, Richie, I'm banged up in, um, in a mental hospital. I want to come on the radio. I said, will you feck off? I said, why? She said, my, I was giving out to my doctor about, you know, vaccines and how vaccines are not safe and stuff like that. And my doctor got pissed off and my doctor sent some health visitors around to see me. Next thing I know, I was sectioned, taken into a hospital to be evaluated. So I said to, to, uh, to, to, uh, Susanna, I said, no problem. I'll think about it. So when I hung up, of course, I rang the hospital and did that thing that journalists do. I lied. <laughs> I said that I was, um, uh, I can't remember what I said, Richie Simpson from the Manchester Evening News. I believe you've got a woman there and I'm just checking on her well-being because there's been some people contacting the newspaper. So they confirmed that she was there, but they wouldn't say what for. So I rang her back up and I said, it seems that you are in the psychiatric facility. You sound all right to me. And she came on and told me the story. And a couple of days later, they said to her, well, we don't think there's anything wrong with you. And they released her. So there's echoes of that. Ramola D will be on the programme in a couple of minutes. Time, it's Thursday's Richie Allen Show. Here is the Counting Crows. This, this is some sort of freaky shit going on here. I just dragged this out at random. More of your comments as well throughout the rest of the programme. Keep them coming in. The time is nine minutes to six o'clock. City! I've got City fans giving me stick. I did say, listen, I'm in no position to throw any stones. United are garbage. They're the worst type of garbage, too. You can't flush it away. That's how bad United are. Lovely. Ramola D needs very little introduction. Uh, certainly not by me, anyway. Lovely human being. Bright as the proverbial button. Terrific writer, broadcaster, poet. And, um, you know, friends of mine would call her a light worker. And I would agree. And uh, I saw... I, I think I was on holiday. I think I was away or I was just back, I saw that people had been wondering about her whereabouts and suggesting that she'd been detained involuntarily. She'd been detained against her will and sent to a psychiatric facility in Massachusetts. It turns out that's true, but she's out, thank God. And this is serious because Ramona is convinced that the, the episode, which must have been terribly disturbing for her, is directly connected to what it is that she does. Ramola, welcome back. How are you? Oh, hi, Richie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well, thank you. Lovely to be on your show. That Thanks very much. Uh, that hasn't happened to me before, but it's happened to one or two people I know um, mm-hmm. who, who, who it shouldn't have happened to, like yourself, you know, people who were taken and there wasn't really anything wrong with them or... They certainly didn't need to be taken into care. Go straight back to when it happened. What happened? How did this come about? 
Okay. Well, it happened on April 14th and three police officers, uh, you know, landed up on my doorstep, um, talked to my husband, fed him a bunch of garbage, um, you know, to the extent that he let them in. And uh, literally, I didn't speak to them. I didn't have an interview with them, which they wrote up, you know, fraudulently on their forums as an interview with a clinical correspondent. They wrote up a bunch of garbage regarding supposedly what I had said, which I had not said, and also a bunch of fraudulent so-called diagnoses from this guy who whose qualifications are rather mysterious and which I aim to find out. You know, I've put in a few FOIA requests and I'm trying to find out more. But basically what happened as, as, um, as a consequence of that was that uh, they literally grabbed me, they manhandled me, forced me out of my house um, and uh, took, called back up, called for an ambulance and took me off to a emergency room in a local hospital in Dorchester, which is a suburb of Boston, and held me in the ER for two days and then after that for four days in a psych ward. And it was only through talking to a bunch of psychiatrists over there and uh, explaining the background of my work, what I do, what I cover, and also explaining the actual circumstances of what happened prior to these police guys showing up on my doorstep that, you know, ultimately convinced them to let me go. Plus, uh, Richie, the, the issue, the very crucial issue of jurisdiction. And, you know, that's a whole issue that I think was really what was instrumental in getting me out of there. This is, because um... I... Can, can I? We've got. I know you. 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 This is a busy day for you, but we've got mm-hmm. um, loads of time. We've got another forty, uh, forty-five minutes from here. Definitely the jurisdiction. I want to hear all about that, and I won't get in your okay. way. But, okay. But 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 when these people turned up, did they have with them in their possession someone someone's evaluation of you? Had somebody done um, an evaluation of you? But in absentia, somebody had said something about you, um, some doctor or, or, or some professional a mental health person. Is that how it worked? Did they turn up and say, we've got some concerns about you and we've got a document here from somebody who believes that you need to be taken into custody? What, what did they have? That's an interesting concept that they might have had a prior kind of pre-evaluation. Yeah. But I'll tell you, but I'll give you a little bit of the background prior to them showing up at my doorstep, um, Richie, which will clarify the whole thing a bit for you. I have to say a couple things. One is, you know, you, you probably know and, you know, a lot of people know that one of the things I cover as a journalist, in fact, one of the primary things I've been covering as a journalist for many, many years is surveillance abuse, surveillance overreach and um, all of the actions that the Homeland Security, the intelligence community, the um, local law enforcement have embarked on since 9-11 in this country, post the Patriot Act, there's been just huge amounts of surveillance, huge amounts of very unlawful activity from the police faction, a lot of fraudulent watchlisting from the FBI, which has rolled thousands, actually millions of people, I think, onto these watchlists for all sorts of vague and absurd reasons when there is no evidence whatsoever that somebody is a terrorist or a spy or anything, they are mislabeled as radicals, as extremists, violent extremists. There's a whole program called Countering Violent Extremism that the FBI has been running for quite a while. And then there's also anti-governmentist. You know, they want to put anybody with an opposing opinion, a dissenting opinion on these lists. So any activist, any journalist, any whistleblower gets um, targeted and put on these lists. And uh, what else? Um, You know, radical 
um, terrorist and spy, all of these things. And, you know, uh, the classification they use, which the ACLU revealed recently, actually a couple of years ago, is um, a very famous classification they use. It's called known and or suspected terrorist. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, they, they use that particular category. And then they have different codes. So if somebody with that code or label is stopped by a police officer for whatever reason, a traffic stop or whatever, um, they'd call up the, this person's background, find they're on this KST watch list and database, and they let them go. Because you know what's really happened to these people? They've been literally trafficked into the intelligence community, into the military community, for a whole bunch of non-consensual experimentation projects. You know, and I've been learning about many of these. I've been talking to whistleblowers from all of these factions, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, and I've been writing about this. So um, it is an actual fact. You can find documentation to the uh, proving that um, the U.S. Air Force, the Air Force Research Lab, the DIA, the um, Army Research Labs, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, the, the Naval Research Labs, they're all conducting what are called um, testing operations, training operations, using what they are calling non-lethal technologies, you know, and these are counter-personal directed energy weapons of different kinds across a whole range. And these, they, they have different names for them, as you probably know, yeah. uh, Richie. Right. EMF technologies. I think we mentioned them on our last conversation. Spectrum technologies. Uh, now the military is calling them intermediate force capabilities. And, and Ramola, you believe that these technologies have been in development for this particular time in history because the screw is going to be tightened on people now. And it's from this point that they might beginning, they might think they they will see some resistance. And these technologies are about countering the resistance to their plans. Is that how we see you know, it? I think that would be a very brilliant and apposite and very relevant reading of these technologies, yeah. uh, Richie, and their purpose. Because indeed, as we saw with the Canberra protest recently, uh, we saw actual physical evidence. They brought out these LRADs, right? These long-range active denial systems. And uh, there were photographs and video taken of this. So I think what's happening now is we are seeing the surfacing of these technologies. They have definitely been in development for decades, you know, since probably the 60s and even behind that time yeah. period. But if you look at some of the documentation that's come out of the DOD and the DOJ in the USA, you will discover that they uh, they They've been developing many technologies. They've been creating, um, what is it called, programs and special institutes within their uh, military divisions to kind of dedicate to the development of these technologies. The US Marine Corps has been at the head of this. They started the Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Program, I think. And what's really interesting is from the 80s onward, there is a paper trail of the DOD working with the DOJ, you know, so bringing some of these technologies, which include sensors, monitors, tagging and tracking technologies, Wi-Fi remote access tech, 
you know, and microwave tech and millimeter wave tech, bringing all of it into the criminal justice system. So they started rolling it out in the correctional institutions, in the prisons, and um, now they've, they've rolled it out also to law enforcement. So that sort of happened in the 90s. In the, in, in they, the 90s, in the 90s, you think they were using, first of all, it's a very good point you're making, the Department of Defence, supposed to be dealing with external threats, working in tandem with the Department of Justice, which is supposed to be looking after threats inside the country and sharing mm-hmm. this technology. So all of a sudden now the technology is not meant to be used against foreign enemies, but it's now uh, to be used against uh, domestic enemies or or extremists. This is hugely interesting and horrifying. Exactly. And, exactly. You, and you think they were using it in prisons. Why? Was it to keep prisoners docile? Was it to keep them quiet? Is that, can it be used for those purposes? Well, I presume it would be used for those yeah. purposes. You know, it's written up very kind of delicately and diplomatically in some of the National Institute of Justice documents, their annual reports and so forth, as sensors being tested, as tracking technologies being tested. And also, you know, the, how they cast everything when they write these documents, always in a sort of beneficial light. Yeah, really that benign. They're track of prisoners, yeah. you know, for their own good kind of thing. Really benign. So, That's, can, I, can I just go back to something? Um, it's not like me now to be jumping in so much as you well know, but I've, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. You've also touched on something very important. Years ago, we were told that extremists were people like David Koresh and people like um, Timothy McVeigh. Now, before Ramola mm-hmm. slaps me across the face or any other listeners do, I don't believe that Timothy McVeigh had anything to do with the Oklahoma bombing personally. And I also don't believe that David Koresh and the Branch Davidians were any great threat to anybody. And I believe they were murdered. They were murdered, these people. Oh. Right. I believe that. Yeah, um, I so, believe they latter so, too. Yeah. So, so that's what they told us. They, they told us that a domestic extremist was somebody who represented a real physical threat to, to people or to buildings or, or whatever. Now, and you're brilliant at this. I've been on your website, everydayconcerned.net, which is brilliant. You're great at fleshing this stuff out. They have broadened the scope over the years, particularly, as you said, after September the 11th. Uh, ironically, because September the 11th is supposed to have been carried out by uh, terrorists from uh, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. But, but that's nonsense, <laughs> right. right? More nonsense. Yeah. But they've broadened the scope of what an extremist is. And they've, and they've, they've ramped this up during... COVID and the rollout of the vaccines. So now they are throwing a net and calling someone an extremist, somebody like a very bright, articulate, gentle, nice um, uh, person like yourself. You're an Mm -hmm. extremist because you're placing into the public uh, domain information that these people would would rather keep quiet. So here's the thing. Mm Is that how you ended up being dragged out of your home and off to a hospital? Because somebody, I think there might be a neighbour involved and we won't name them, but but somebody has said this woman is an extremist because of the things she talks about on the internet and because of the things she writes about on her website. Is that basically what's gone on? You're an extremist now. Yeah, let me address that um 
Richie, by just sort of con connecting it with what we were just talking about with how they've brought this technology into the streets, they've brought it into law enforcement, and there's actual documentation proving that they've done this. And they kept their memoranda of understanding secret until very recently, and they were released on FOIA request in 2018, showing, you know, that uh, Janet Reno, back in the day, she was the Attorney General, right? She was the head of the Department of Justice. And uh, John Dodge, who also did a stint as head of the CIA, but uh, we're speaking for the military at the time. So they signed a memorandum bringing some of this classified non-legal tech onto the streets and giving it to the police departments, giving it to law enforcement, giving it to the criminal justice system. So they've literally brought it into um, our neighborhoods, all right? But they're being super quiet about it. And when we do FOIA requests, I certainly have done some. Um, they are not uh, presenting the information. In fact, I got a note back from the uh, Massachusetts uh, Fusion Center when I first did a FOIA request asking for, you know, what kind of surveillance devices are you using? What kind of surveillance technologies are you using, etc.? I got back a note saying, in the interest of public safety, we cannot divulge this information, which kind of defeats the purpose and is sort of self-defeating and counterintuitive because I was asking in the interest of public safety. Well, of course, and personal you know? safety. In the interest <laughs> of my personal safety, could you please tell me which uh, electromagnetic um, weapons you, you, you are deploying on our streets. Please tell me that. I'm yes. entitled to know that, right? Exactly. We are all entitled to know that the public is entitled to know what kind of surveillance technologies are being used on the public. So they are not letting us know. And in addition to this, we've got all of these compartmentalized classified weapons testing operations going on from the military and the intelligence community. And in 2012, I don't know if you know, you've heard of the President's Bioethical Commission. Many people came out and reported they're being hit with this te technology. And uh, the woman, Amy Gutman, who was conducting these bioethical commissions, actually wrote a letter back saying, sorry, we can't take your uh, statements into account when her entire commission was all about trying to find out from the field if there was any kind of non-consensual experimentation going on. So very bizarre and stonewalling, fortressing kind of actions from the government at that time. And basically what came out of that uh, bioethical commission, and the reason I mention it, is that the CIA had apparently approached the commission and let them know that, yes, they were engaging in domestic operations, but they weren't going to give any further information. All right. And uh, that was the CIA. All right. So we have now we've got the CIA, we've got the military, uh, we've got all sorts of unknown U.S. agencies engaging in this. And you mentioned, you know, David Koresh, etc. And I think a lot of people, a lot of analysts, a lot of journalists, not me, but lots of people who've looked at the information and written up, you know, written uh, news articles and analyses about it have indeed stated that it's um, that these kinds of spectrum technologies were used by the FBI during that time period. And that was a complete, you know, complete criminal action by the FBI and people were murdered, you know, children were murdered, um, mothers and fathers were murdered. It was it was horrific. And yet they were wrongfully miscast as extremists, etc. So bringing that to the present day, now in 2013, I have reported very publicly that I personally have been targeted. I've been in many, many ways. My life was completely attacked in 2013 to the extent that it forced me to become a journalist. You know, I was working, I've spent 20 years teaching creative writing at the university level. And when I, when we first came up to the Boston area from Washington, DC, I was running workshops for children. My daughter was six at the time. 
And there was a real dearth of art workshops in the area. So I talked to some of the mothers and I set up art workshops, which kind of expanded into creative writing workshops. That's sort of my field. And then, um, you know, some natural science workshops, some natural math workshops, very fun workshops after school, summer camp, homeschooling, which I did for a couple of years. And then this happened all of a sudden, you know, and this happened to me right after I wrote to senators asking about chemtrails. And I also spoke to somebody in my daughter's school about some extra babysitting fees that they were planning to set up. And I kind of, you know, questioned that. And this woman happened to be the treasurer of the school, school board. And I think she talked to the president. And um, I gather in retrospect, I actually did the FOIA on this guy. Um, He worked for a defense contractor. So, you know, I'm just putting things together. It really seemed to me that they were involved in getting me targeted. And by that, what I mean is they acted as community-based informants who call on the FBI and then get people watchlisted. And this, by the way, is how the fraudulent FBI watchlisting has been going on. Many, many people all around the country are being wrongfully targeted in this fashion by community-based informants. You know, people in your schools, in your um, local institutions, your communities, people you don't know, you know, who are... And perhaps it's very related to what you also said earlier, Richie, this time period. This time period, we are looking at a world government being formed and taking over all of our rights and freedoms. So I think from way back, from 20 to 30 years back, they have been working on rooting out people in communities who are like me. You know, um, people who are community minded, who like to engage in the community, who speak out. That's all I was doing. I was speaking out as a mother, you know, in my yeah. daughter's school. Well, to them, you're and a troublemaker. I, to them, I'm a troublemaker. You're a troublemaker, Correct. yeah. Correct. And, and over the years, yeah. they may they may have been targeting people like you over the years for two reasons. One, because they see you as a very articulate troublemaker, but also to test this stuff, to keep testing it. And That's now right. it seems like they've got an array of... Um, uh, weaponry and, and equipment that can target people in this way right now at this time when maybe they feel they need this stuff more than ever. And I have a theory, and mm-hmm. uh, shoot this down by all means, but I have a theory. That some years ago, I would have um, scoffed at the idea of energy healing and energy mm-hmm. healers, but I've had some personal experiences that have um, led to me changing my mind, completely independently changing my mm-hmm. mind. And I think energy healing is, a, is not only very real, but it's a great gift to the world, I believe. And mm-hmm. I believe this electromagnetic weaponry technology, I believe it's also partly to interfere with the work of energy healers. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the energy healing is the other side of the it's the good side it's the healing side and it also tells us you know there's lots of scientists now making these discoveries that um electromagnetic fields surround us we have a biofield and we are actually able to influence the area around us the ether around us through our electromagnetic vibrations and frequencies you see and this connects back to you know what david ike's been talking about and keeping people in fear mode all the time do you know what i mean and 
keeping people in that frequency of fear as opposed to the frequency of joyousness and, yeah. you know, dynamic community, um, connected, harmonious living, um, doing what you love, being happy. So we, are, we, for many decades and probably centuries, we've been kept in a low frequency mode, primarily to affect this electromagnetic field, this biofield all around us, and to, to prevent change from positive change and positive consciousness from emerging, I think. So I think you're absolutely correct. So um, these electromagnetic technologies that they have been using are biohacking technologies, you know, they have bio effects. They literally can affect your nerves, your joints, your muscles, your brain, your speech, your voice, your health. They can affect your health, and that is how they're being used against people. So, yes, hey, Ramola, say, sorry, so, so again, they're sorry, testing. They are testing. Again, sorry for the interruption, but for the sceptics, because there are sceptics listening to this, and they will accuse me of doing the thing that I accuse the BBC presenters of doing, and that's not asking a proper challenging question. Um, but, mm-hmm. but, um, I can't really, because they've admitted, I mean, when the truckers got together in... In, uh, in in Canada to protest the uh, arbitrary and dystopian and horrible totalitarian COVID rules in Canada. They openly used these devices against people, didn't they? The Canadian police. The, the, I mean, it was even, as far as I remember, even the Canadian press reported on it. The police had these microwave type electromagnetic devices um, to, to distract and to drive back the crowds, didn't they? In Canada? So yeah. I'm aware of it happening in Canberra in Australia. Canberra. I'm sure Canberra. I'm sure I read yeah, Canada too. The Freedom too. Rallies in Canberra. The Freedom Rallies, yeah, they definitely and I think I saw photographs in Canada of these boxes that they had. Okay. But look, I stand okay. to be corrected. I'm missing that. I d I don't know. Hey, about listen, that. you know more than I do, so maybe I'm wrong about Canada, but certainly Canberra openly using this stuff. It was in full view of people, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. Absolutely. And in fact, that's what I was saying. You know, it's right now they're beginning to surface them and they are crowd control technologies. That's essentially what they are. And what they are, again, it's the name that they're using. You know, they're biohacking technologies is really what they are. But they are, um, they've got a bunch of names and they are used, they are justifying the use of these technologies as riot control, crowd control, and to put down um, uprisings. And this is why, you know, those freedom rallies were very peaceful rallies, right? They yeah. were just people getting together and holding signs and singing songs and whatnot. But they're being mischaracterized by the police faction as, you know, uprisings, revolts, revolutions, whatever. And we are also familiar now with the creation of what is it called? Contrived rioting. Yeah. You know, the con- the contrived element like Antifa or Black Lives Matter or, you know, some of the more rowdy elements suddenly showing up in the middle of peaceful protests and giving everybody a bad name, you know, and uh, changing the um, the whole cater and the nature of the protest or the rally to non-peaceful, which gives them an opportunity to come in and say, you know, we are the police and we have to, you know, use some force here and make sure that people are pacified. That's another famous word, by the way, and it's in the NATO documents um, and in the U.S. documents as well, the military documents, the term pacification, subjugation and um, deterrence, crime prevention, 
peace enforcement. I mean, I find this the most oxymoronic and laughable of all, and it's in a NATO document, peace yeah. enforcement. Yeah. So you see, this is how they're wrapping it up. You know, they're wrapping it up in this language of supposed benefit and supposed in the interests of public safety. When in actuality, it's a major assault on the human body. And human rights lawyers need to be stepping up to the plate and assessing this technology and speaking openly about it. You know, um, we need human rights lawyers. We need medical ethicists. We need physicians who know about the human body, right? And we need bioethicists, neuroethicists to step forward and start addressing the actual complete um abrogation of human rights in the use of these horrific electromagnetic technologies, which are so invasive to the human body and very damaging to human health and also to the human brain, by the way. And that's a whole other story. And to the brain. Because they are able to affect brains now. Do you know, I was um, confronted by somebody last year who, uh, very pleasant, but confronted me and said, um, "You, your program is crazy. I, I heard you talking to somebody about these microwave weapons. And I had the phone on me, I always do. So I said, look, and I was able to show the person the patent, the mm-hmm. patents for, for, good, for these good. weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure I grabbed some of the information from your website, maybe from Celeste's website, Celeste's oh, good, but, but, good, but yours. Yeah. The information is out there, Richie. And in fact, not just are there patents, um, there's a lot of documentation now and there's a lot of FOIA release declassified documentation from the US Army, from the US Navy um, and the US Air Force it's talking yeah. about these weapons. The US Air Force has something called the Radio Dosimetry Handbook where they actually record and document what they have, some of the research that they've done um, about the different frequencies affecting different parts of the body and you know what these frequencies are, etc. So there is a lot of information out, but it's being kept very hidden because mainstream media is not covering no, it and that's the problem well, so you, know, you the, have the, the, people the, like Celeste and me covering it well it's only you and Celeste really do you know the so the gentleman who, who will remain nameless but I know his name he's a good lad actually he's a fo- he's, he's, we, we talk about football mm-hmm. so I said there's the, the there's the equipment right there alright he said well uh, that's ridi- it's ridiculous to think they'd be using it and I said well hang on a second now 30 seconds ago you told me it didn't exist now you're accepting mm-hmm. it does exist but now you're telling me they wouldn't use it I said why wouldn't they use it and we're back to this cognitive dissonance again where the gentleman said it is cognitive said, dissonance and you have yeah. to ask well why do you think they're not using it when there yeah. are hundreds and thousands of people coming forward and talking about yeah. being hit with these weapons and actually tons of people who have a lot of medical evidence uh, Richie people have been wrongfully implanted they've taken x-rays done MRIs so that information and evidence is out there and you know people are also well all of us I think have are awash with nanotechnology now which is coming to us from various sources right the water the aerosols and whatnot. So people have actually done these SCADA analyses with industrial toxicologists, and they have that evidence of this nanotech, the waveguides, etc., being found inside their bodies. And people have um, evidence from x-rays of things like, you know, this is old technology, but unfortunately, I think some of these agencies are still using it, and that's RFID chips, microchips. So people have found microchips inside their bodies. And I can tell you, so from my own experience, yeah, I've been hit by a bunch of different technologies, and that's what started me on this road of trying... Yeah to find out what on earth is going on and what kind of tech are they using, you know? Do you remember, Ramona, do you remember years ago, um, some of our documentary channels, many years ago, spoke to lovely people, some of them very gentle, very unsophisticated people, you know, people from from, um, poor backgrounds, not not, not in any way suggesting 
unintelligent. But you know, I come from a poor background, and uh, um, so I, I have great empathy with people like that. And uh, not always articulate, bright, but not always articulate. But they would go on these programs to talk about. Uh, how they found something in their bodies. And you remember, they used to think that they'd been abducted by aliens. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Now, I'm not saying that some people were not um, visited by... Um, I mean, I- I'm I'm wide open to the idea that people could be visited by um, by beings from other dimensions. I'm, I'm wide open to that. Why, why not? I haven't seen any evidence uh, that, mm-hmm. that, it's, that it's nonsense. But, but later, be, be, again, because of your work, Celeste, and, and one or two others only... I've begun to think now, I've begun to wonder now, maybe people way back when who saw that this alien object in their body, um, you know, was in fact put there by an alien presence, might in fact have been uh, domestic, basically, abuse committed by one of the um, alphabet agencies. You know, working with these. Yeah, absolutely. Entirely possible. And, you know, they have something called clandestine operations where they're even more darker than dark, you know, so they don't even mention that they have these operations. And that's, you know, they they sheathe and conceal these clandestine operations in layers and layers of secrecy. And, you know, it, this this technology is so sort of within their ballpark. You know, this is like these are stealth technologies. These are secretive, invisible technologies. This is precisely what they are salivating over, you know, because now they can use this tech to harm others, to control others without anybody knowing. I mean, do you know at this point there's there's technology like uh, what is it called? Um, sheathing radar where people can actually cloak themselves invisible cloaking technologies not just for aircraft but for people you, you can are throw something kidding like me. a fabric so we're into the invisible man territory now exactly really I mean, so so somebody could be standing some agent of some horrible uh, group some horrible again alphabet agency some agent could be mm-hmm. within vision of me but i couldn't see him or her you you think mm-hmm. they've got that tech now no, they have the tech. The information is out there. It's actually in mainstream. It's in the public domain. I'll send you some articles after we get off the phone over here. Um, so, yeah, so the, the military has actually surfaced this. So one of the things they do is after they develop it for 20 to 30 years, then they surface it and it becomes commercial, you see. So um, many people think, those people who have been targeted, some people have reported to me that they feel that they've that there are people who, who wear this sheathing tech and, you know, hang out near their houses. So... Um, I don't know if they can be seen through infrared or something like that, but the right. sheathing deck has been actually admitted to by the military. So um, so what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, I don't want to make too fine a point about that particular kind of tech. I don't know too much about it. But what I'm trying to say is that all of these technologies are um, invisible technologies. You know, they are, they are technologies which will only register on a meter. You know, if you have electromagnetic meters on that frequency range, that's when you find out, yeah, you're getting, you know, extremely low frequency pulses coming into the house, or you're getting very high gigahertz, a millimeter wave frequencies coming into the house. And you can also find out, I think, through spectrum analyzers where it's coming from, the actual source. But it's very, very tricky when they have layered sources and layered delivery platforms, which is what they are using, I think. And decades, um, and decades and decades and decades of research. Brilliant question. I've just noticed um, my pal, uh, Spiro Skouras, a great uh, reporter. Spiro has uh, said, mm-hmm. Richie, r- remind um, your listeners, ask Ramola 
about the media reporting on Havana syndrome. I think last time Celeste was on, we might have chatted yes. about that. I think we might have chatted about it. But isn't that a mm-hmm. fascinating thing? The BBC did a huge report on Havana syndrome and it wasn't a report that was in any way dismissing the possibility of the technology. It didn't attempt to debunk it. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the report was taking it very seriously. What do you think mm-hmm. about that? Well, I think it's really interesting because I've been following all of that reportage as well. It's been coming out here in, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, etc. And it seems to me that's the way they're trying to surface this technology, but not taking any, what is the word, responsibility for having developed it and using it. Right. So this, because they are disassociating themselves completely from the field reports of people who come to my channel, you know, for interviews and tell me their experience. Um, So they're dissociating themselves from that entire phenomenon of quote-unquote targeted individuals, which you are familiar with, I'm sure. But uh, but they are saying, you know, they've got their, their little props, they've got their CIA... Um, you know, spy as hero prop, and they they've got their Department of State diplomat as hero prop to come forward and you know give us the sub story that oh now they're victims sitting in Cuba and Shanghai and Beijing and being attacked by uh, foreign countries and uh, using this technology on them. Whereas in actuality, <laughs> Celeste and I can tell you that this tech's been you know developed by the UK and the US for ages and also by Europe. A lot of you know European countries. Every country I think has been developing non They're all doing it. And neurotech. Yeah, right. They're all, they've been in an arms race forever. Let me know. go back about 30 minutes. Um, Ramola D is our guest, in investigative journalist, author, poet and broadcaster. Check out everydayconcerned.net. Uh, Do, folks, if you haven't done before. It's, it's, this is sensational stuff if you're brand new to it, but please take my word for it. Everything she's told you with respect to the technology existing and it's being used. She's right. This is proven. She's proven it. Not only are the patents there to show that it exists, uh, the evidence is there now to show it has been used. So I'm fascinated. Um, Ramola has been a recurring guest on the programme now for some time, which is fantastic. In mid-April, only a couple of weeks ago, uh, she was um, detained and sent to a emergency room and then on to a psychiatric ward for evaluation. She feels, uh, and I understand why she feels, that she was targeted because of the work she does and the th- the things that she tries to reveal, that she tries to put in the public domain. Now, you mentioned that during that period where psychiatrists were asking you questions, you, mm-hmm. and I have no doubt you did this because you strike me, you've always struck me as someone who's very plucky, um, very, very ballsy, we would say. But you, you shared this information with them. Absolutely. And, and they were, they were inclined to actually listen, were they? Well, yes. And frankly, what else do I have to go on, Richie? Just to give you a little bit of background to to sort of flesh out the whole story, so to speak. I think the reason I was targeted at this particular point um, in time was because this woman across the street, um, you know, who just came out of nowhere one day and started yelling at me and accused me of filming her children, which of course I wasn't doing. I was filming my flowers and not even filming. I was photographing my flowers in my front garden. Uh, This woman is uh, located and living in a house 
distance from which I have measured EMF pulses. So I see her house and a, and a couple of other houses in the neighborhood as being engaged. And this is part of what I have recently been revealing quite extensively, both in a general way and also in a very specific way from my neighborhood that, you know, there are fusion houses in our neighborhoods. Those of us who are being wrongfully targeted, we are being hit with neighborhood watch hostility, for, which comes from, you know, the general neighborhood because this is part of their citizen corps, infraguard, neighborhood watch, monitoring and policing programs. The police faction comes into the neighborhood, tells a bunch of lies about the person they want to target and gets all the neighbors involved in the storyline that you've got to watch this highly unstable terrorist anti-government person. And so every time they come out of their house, you've got to engage in some massive noise harassment, pull out your loudest snowblower or leaf blower and get going with it, that kind of thing. So that's been going on for eight years, all right, in this neighborhood. And what I'm reporting is nothing new. Almost everybody who's targeted across the USA and, by the way, across the UK as well, reports exactly the same kind of thing. You know, lots of neighborhood hostility of different kinds. So, but in addition to that, there's also technical surveillance going on, you know, and this language, by the way, the, the CIA is using the language of ubiquitous technical surveillance. The NSA calls it signals intelligence. There's a remote neural monitoring. That's a term that surfaced from a lawsuit that a former NSA whistleblower you know, launched against the NSA. That's uh, John Sinclair Arquai, very famous lawsuit, lots of information in there about these signals, intelligence and EMF spectrum technology programs. But literally how they're doing it from my assessment, from what I am learning is, um, yeah, you know, there's lots of there's lots of secret agencies involved. There's lots of third and fourth party contractors involved. And there are fusion center contracts involved. And they are connected with, with all of these different programs, crime prevention, countering violent extremism, community policing, etc. But they're also situating people in houses. You've got actual paid mercenaries sitting in houses wielding these weapons, whatever they're calling them. They can call it tech surveillance if they like. They can call it, you know, community policing if they like. But in actuality, what they're engaging in is physical assault and battery from a distance. You know, this is remote access Wi-Fi technology, which, which touches people's bodies, touches, invades, intimately touches, invades, and attacks people's bodies and causes harm. Okay, that's what they're really doing. And, and changes this is why the I, body. It changes. It physiologically changes. Physiologically um, changes yeah, the body. Yeah. yeah. So this is what I, this thing that I have revealed in recent times, I think, caught their attention and made them come after me big time. Uh, this, I say this because I got lots of COVID comes to this effect. Oh, Ramola, you know, she's hot. She's on fire. They don't mean I'm hot and, you know, the hot way, but yeah, she's yeah. hot. She's yeah. hot. She's on fire because, you know, she's come too close. She's revealing us a bit too closely. She's revealing the neighbors. She's revealing the neighborhood. All right. So when this woman screamed at me, so she was screaming at me, stop filming my children. I turned around. And said, I, well, I'm afraid I yelled back at her. Stop, you know, using microwave weapons on me. And she said, what are you talking about? And she started to record me. And she was, you know, we had a verbal slinging match, clearly. We had what you can call a public neighborhood dispute or, you know, it was it was an altercation. And she was screaming at me, um, why are you taking? No, no, she didn't say why. She said, stop taking 
uh, video of my children. I said, why are you suggesting that I'm taking video of your stupid children? And, you know, I was rude. I said stupid children. Um, but I said, you know, that's a false allegation ultimately. And I went back into the house. So we had a heated exchange. She recorded that exchange. Eventually, um, Richie, she showed it not just to the police. I think she made it available to the hospital because everybody over there saw it and they were making remarks about it. Right. So, yeah, so I literally created quite a furor in this hospital, both at the ER and the psych wing, for a number of reasons, but primarily because I was saying very firmly, you guys have brought me here against my will. You know, I'm under duress, no consent. I'm not submitting to a damn thing you ask of me. You know, whether you want a urine test or a blood test, I'm going to say no, no, no to everything because this is, you don't have a right to do this to me. And I said from the beginning, you know, this is police retaliation for journalism revealing police crime. And um, they all heard this. So, you know, they thought I was, you know, sort of a personality over there throwing my weight about. I was just stating the fact. And but but, you know, they managed to get a hold of my website, letters on my website, letters from my email. They got into my email. OK, they were reading out. So I had put a notice in this woman's door and in the door of the woman next to her detailing what I have experienced in this neighborhood for eight years, right. which involves the kind of neighborhood watch harassment I was talking about, including the microwave weapon harassment, uh, which is more than harassment, really. It's microwave weapon assault and batteries, what it is. Hey, Ramola, wouldn't it, it, this is a, an important legal point, I think, to break into your email account, wouldn't they, correct me if I'm wrong, wouldn't they need to get a judge to sign off on that? They may have gotten a judge done. to sign off on that because I'm telling you the whole setup is criminal. The whole targeting setup is super, super criminal. These judges are corrupt. They can get their judges to do anything because they're all working in cahoots with each other. So that's entirely possible. But as far as I'm concerned, I, nobody told me that there was a judge involved. Somebody got permission. Nobody told me any of that. I just them reading out my email and, and hooting and laughing about it. They read this notice, okay, and how do they get this notice? So either these police guys gave them a copy of my notice or they got it from my email, but in actuality, they made remarks talking about the email and, oh, how she just attached it and she sent the email and here it is. And so I think they got it from the email, you know, and they were talking about other emails as well, not just this particular one. So um, they were definitely reading my email and you know who it was? It was the security guys at the emergency room who have a connection. So, so you see, Richie, here's what I learned from this whole experience. I learned very viscerally that there is a, an understructure, a substructure, you know, so in the newspaper, in the mainstream media, you're given to understand that everything is kosher, everything is above board, you've got the police watching out for the people, blah, 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 the government's watching out for the people. In reality, when something like this happens, you begin to discover the security guys are, are corrupt so-and-sos, and they are in connection with the police guys who are corrupt so-and-sos, and they are in connection with the ER doctors who are also corrupt so-and-sos. I should tell you what, some, what I heard some the, the ER doctor tell say aloud, which gave me to understand definitively that 100% I'm being retaliated against. Do you want to hear what I, what I heard? Absolutely. Go ahead. By the way, it's a big <laughs> okay. club, as George Carlin said. It's a big club and, and we're not in it. When you describe the interrelationships between security and doctors and the police, 
It's a big club, isn't it? Exactly. That's cabal, exactly yeah. right. George Carlin was yeah. absolutely right. It's a big club in it. So I had one of the people. So, you know, they had me under 24 hour security staring at me, completely unarmed woman who's like, you know, literally five, two or something. A tiny woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are a tiny woman. There's no doubt. I can vouch for that. Thank you. And, <laughs> and, you know, they're sitting there uh, staring at me 24 seven, like I'm going to do something. And I'm, you know, barely talking to anybody. Well, I was talking, actually. I was, you know, asking them questions. I was just trying to be normal because it was a ridiculous situation. Did you feel and, that, by the way, that, 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 that makes me laugh now. Did you feel that you had to be extra normal <laughs> when, when you were there? <laughs> That's a great word. I have to remember. <laughs> Got to be extra normal here so yeah, that they don't chuck me into a padded cell. Yeah. Yeah. I probably thought just that, yeah, I've got to be, I did know I had to be cool and calm. So I was schooling myself yeah. <laughs> to stay quiet a little bit. Um, you know, even though I kept saying no, no, no to everything. But um, yeah, so one of the women who was sitting there, who is, um, you know, um, her job was to sit up across from me and st- stare at me nonstop. Um, she said to somebody who came in through the door and he was dressed all in black and uh, they were both African-Americans. And she said to him, she's a victim. And then she said, there's another one here. A right. victim. Yes. So she wow. knows that about the targeting programs, all right? She knows about wrongful watch listing and people being targeted and being hit with this weaponry, you know? And I would actually liken this kind of targeting to satanic ritual abuse. It's ridiculous. It's 24-7, it's nonstop, and it's extremely invasive. And did, you, did you say to the woman in attendance who was there to observe you to make sure you didn't harm yourself, did you say, excuse me, what do you mean by victim? Well, at this point, I was just listening quietly. You were just it listening, was pretty right. late at night. I was just listening and I listened yeah. to her. I did ask her later what she did. And uh, she was very reluctant to speak to me. And then she said she was like a medical tech. She, I asked her what she did. She said she did medical tech. I said, oh, what do you mean? And then she kind of froze up again. And the entire time she was pointing her phone at me. You know, I think she was literally engaging in tech surveillance, which is she was, you know, sending some frequencies my way the entire time. But um, she, recording I said, you maybe. You know, I said, do you mean like an x-ray tech? And then she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, she kind of um, covered that over. But, you know, so what I what I think about her is I think she's on the inside. And I think the dark agencies and the classified operations, the way they operate is through some of these people, you know, planted in specific spots. And she was one of them. And she knows the score. She knows what's going on. So the other big thing I heard, and this is even bigger. So um, this was the ER doctor, right? And the ER doctors are like, you know, fair of the emergency room. They act like the kings over there. So this guy was on the phone. And while I was there, because I was there for two days, I was saying no to everything. They wanted to get me out of there. All right. They wanted to literally get rid of me. But they didn't want to let me go. I tried very hard to speak to them and let them know that there was no reason to hold me. They didn't want to let me go for a number of reasons. And I'll tell you, you'll, it'll become clear in a minute. So um, he was on the phone and he first said, she's espionage. So, of course, I my ears perked up, like, what on earth does that mean? You know, this is the first time hearing of this. She's espionage. I mean, who are they talking about? So it turns out they were talking about me. And the next thing he said was, um, yeah, we've been calling around to a bunch of psych facilities and nobody wants to take her because there's no trauma. <laughs> so you know what that means? It means that there's, are you still there? Richard? I'm gripped. Of course I'm still here, yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. So basically what that means is I was just sitting there being calm and, you know, schooling myself to stay calm. Um, There was no trauma. There was no psychosis. I wasn't throwing a fit. I wasn't violent. I wasn't angry with anyone. 
So this is why they couldn't, no psych facility wanted to take on the liability of taking somebody like me. All right. So this hospital was stuck with me. But my question really is, why was Kearney Hospital so keen on holding me when very clearly there was no trauma? I was evincing very clearly that I was not a candidate for a 72-hour, three-day psych hold, mental evaluation, all of that, you know. I was just sitting there calmly. So by their observation, they should have let me go. Occam's razor comes in here. Obviously, it's, it sounds to me anyway that it's obvious that another party was bringing pressure on Kearney Hospital to say, keep this woman here for a while. That's correct. And no the doubt. very next thing I hear gives exactly truth to what you just said, Richie, because the next thing I heard from this guy was, yeah, he's still on the phone, right? Yeah, I understand. You're just looking for a way to, for an access point to get her an entry into the system to enter her into the system. Right. <laughs> How do you like that? My God, that was it, like right there. And, you know, later on, I heard other stuff to support this where, oh, they're going to get a DA and they're going to, uh, what? Put her, get her before a judge and get her before a psychologist and she'll have the right to say, say anything or not if she pleases. But, um, you know, we're going to keep her here. She's going to be committed for another two weeks. Can you believe that? They wanted to hold me for two other weeks. They wanted to put me through a court process. They wanted to do a civil commitment on me. Who is this they, you know? And when I was sitting there, um, one guy showed up, kind of came over to the cubicle where I was being held, looked at me. Gave me sort of a sharp look, but vanished very quickly. This guy was dressed in Massachusetts State Police garb. Now, Massachusetts State Police is the head of the Mass Fusion Center, which is the Commonwealth Fusion Center here. And I found that out by doing a FOIA request a long time ago, you know. So over and about Quincy Police capturing me in this ambush operation, we've got Massachusetts Police, I think, being involved. And, you know, the fusion centers are where the other dark agencies come in, you see. So they, the fusion centers are wrongfully watchlisting people and trafficking people to the dark agencies, all right, and to the military divisions. So when he comes in, I think he came in as sort of, I don't know what, supervisor, overseer of the cap captive person, who knows. But um, he, he came and made a presence of himself. I was not introduced to this person. Nobody came and spoke to me. No police came and spoke to me after I was you know, thrown into this ER, frozen out for two days, and then frozen out horrific conditions in the other place as well, you know, in the, in the psych ward where they eventually took me. And I know we're running out of time, so we don't have too much time to talk about that. But I just wanted to mention that, you know, the, the mass police guys were, were part of this too. So my suspicion is that, yeah, the local Commonwealth Fusion Center is very involved, was very involved in this attempt to keep me there longer and to definitely get like a psych diagnosis against my name and possibly to move me into their little program, you know, criminal justice system, constant running after judges, hearings, having social workers assigned to you, all this rubbish. Well, from the beginning, I was stating, you, I, you know, you don't have jurisdiction. You know, Richie, it's a very good thing that I stood on jurisdiction because that is ultimately what saved me. And uh, because I knew they had this plan, I learned about it while I was up in the psych ward. I stopped answering to the name and that 
is the key. That is how I got out of that place. Um, they think they own the name. They think the, the, the name, everybody's name is their legal property. And so if you answer to the name, then the magistrate is able to establish contract with you. This is all about contract. Yeah. So do you know what I mean? So I've if you don't this, yeah. answer to the name, they don't have contract with you and they cannot hold you. And I think that's how I really got out of there. In addition to this one psychiatrist, this one doctor being very savvy and knowing about the Havana syndrome news coverage. And, um, you know, she listened to my whole story. She she said, you you should not be here. She agreed. I was not a candidate for a psych ward. And um, she said, um, you know, that she had a background in the military. She'd worked. She had some military awareness. And so she knew about this technology. So and she so, knew it existed. You know, so ultimately, what, 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 what they wanted was as you said, to get a commitment against your name. And that, and, so. that, and that maybe then in the very near future, when this stuff is more public, it might be easier for them to discredit someone like you by saying, well, sure, look, this crazy cat woman was thrown into... Exactly. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you see, so she's going around accusing her neighbours, she's harassing her neighbours, putting notices yeah. and flyers. You know, I wrote to the police a couple of days ago and I said, look, writing and speaking are not crimes. Putting notices and flyers on people's fences and doorsteps and whatever, you know, these are not crimes. And what do I say in the notice? I say things like, you know, this kind of thing is going on and fusion centres are engaging in these kinds of activities and people who are being wrongfully targeted have the right to record and document their harassment. And I think that is absolutely correct. And I stand on that 100%. You know, I, I think everybody has a right to document your harassment. 100%. And everybody has a right not to be um, attacked with this weaponry. The weaponry exists. Yes. We know yeah. it has been used in the past. We know it's been used in the present. And you're right. With, with this stuff existing and being used, not a single, apart from the mention of the Havana syndrome. Mm -hmm. This has never been touched by by the uh, what we call the legacy media, the mainstream media. It's never gone anywhere near it until very uh, recently. But um mm -hmm. I'm glad you I'm glad you sorry, I mean what an experience. I mean a horrible experience, but what an experience nonetheless. And I suppose it's just yes. it's I suppose it's just refocused your mind that you know you're dealing with incredibly powerful people and the network yeah. aspect of that is really sinister isn't it so many Correct, different agencies is. medical um you know facilities mm -hmm. hospitals security agencies all mm -hmm. kind of working together you know to to basically turn a blind eye to what each other agency is doing but also working in cooperation with with one another sinister Correct. in the extreme uh, ramon i know you've got to run you've got to uh I do another interview yeah. right soon. You need to prepare for that. Yeah. But thanks for sharing that with us. What an experience. And, dear listener, if you go to everydayconcerned.net, you can read more about it. And if it's new to you, this subject matter, you can also read about the, um, the history of this technology, uh, where it came from, who's using it and why, and uh, people being targeted with it as well. Great pleasure, Amola. I'm glad you got through it. Thank you so it. much, Richie. I mean, honestly, tremendous to do an interview with you and to be able to share all of this information with your listeners. Um, so grateful. Thank you for responding to my note. Not at all. You mind yourself and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Ramola. Ramola D, live on the line from Massachusetts. EverydayConcerned.net is the website. Do check it out. The time is 13 and a half minutes to the top of the hour.
it's a funny one that meeting uh, a guy who I won't mention. He's a nice guy. I meet him very early in the mornings, actually. And he's uh, a sometime occasional listener to the programme, but doesn't buy into a lot of what he hears, fair enough. It's not my job to tell people what to think. But uh, he um, was adamant that none of this stuff exists. And I was able to say, well, it does. Look, here, here's the stuff. I'll show you photographs and stuff. And genuine patents or patents. Right, okay. But there's no way this is being used on people. I'm like, well, 30 seconds ago he said it doesn't exist. Now you know it exists. So what you thought you knew, you didn't know. Maybe you'd have to concede that it's a possibility that these technologies are being used on people. But he still wouldn't. No, no, it's all mad. It's mad. <laughs> Did I ever tell you this story? I've probably told you too many times, but it's one of the, the best laughs I've ever had. I was in what we called Moon's Pub in Brent, in London, in Wembley. In fact, only a three, four, five minute walk from Wembley Stadium. And I'm in there one evening, we lived there, and no game on or anything, we lived there, our apartment was there. And I'm having a bit of Weatherspoon's freeze-dried food with, uh, with David Icke, so we're sitting there. And it's funny how you could do as much, you could write as many books as David Icke had written to that point. And yet, he was approached by a gentleman who knew him, but knew him from, from being an ex-footballer. Anyway, so he came over, oh, you're David Icke, aren't you? You used to do the BBC, you used to work on the BBC, the snooker. Yes, it's David. And you uh, were a goalkeeper, weren't you? For Coventry for a while, for Hereford. I was, says David. Sit down, said the guy, sat down. Anyway, So he said he had a coat with him. And he took his coat off and he had a beer and he hung his coat, I remember it was a brown leather jacket, on the back of his chair. So he's chatting away with David anyway. No interest in me, fair enough. Chatting away, why would he have any interest in me? And they're chatting away about sports, this, that, and the other thing. Anyway, what are, you, what are you doing these days, says the guy. I'm involved in a TV channel, says David. And I write books. About what, says your man. Well, says David, just about, you know, information that's important to people about how the world is being managed by uh, hidden figures, managing the world, taking the world in a direction that's very, very, very bad for humanity. And I get some information about that that's legitimate and I, I write about it and I talk about it. All right, says the guy. Give us an example. David looked at me and I said, well, I said, well, September the 11th is a great example. And David said, yeah. So he said to the guy, look, on the face of it, says David, uh, towers, excuse me, planes were flown into three buildings on September the 11th and one was driven into the ground after the passengers fought back. Yes, says the guy. Well, says David, there's a lot of information out there that suggests that that story is not as uh, it appears. It, it's not actually uh, accurate. That um, the attack on the Twin Towers was actually carried out by somebody else, that it wasn't carried out by these uh, Muslims with their Stanley knives who took over the planes. And there's a lot of information out there, says David, that suggests that planes couldn't be, uh, or, or that buildings couldn't collapse 
you know, basically into dust, into their own foundations after they were hit by planes. The guy was getting a bit agitated. So what are you saying, says the guy? And David said, well, I believe that um, the whole story, as told to us by our media, is a great big pack of lies and that it was a set-up event, says David. I don't think he used false flag. Um, to give the, the the United States government and the British government and the French government, he's written, well, not, not the French government back then, I don't think he said the French government, uh, the Israelis and others, um, to start wars in the Middle East and... You can imagine what else David said. Anyway, the guy stood up, slammed his pint glass down on the table and ran out of the bar, left the bar at the speed of light he was so disgusted and left his brown leather jacket behind him and he didn't come back for it. And I remember looking at David and just bursting out laughing and saying, well, this is what you're up against now. This level of cognitive dissonance. Not only cognitive dissonance, but flying into a rage you know, to even be asked to consider that something as big as that might not be as it appears to be. It might be something entirely different. And, and you, you come up against that all the time. I'm sure you do. I do. Here are the patents. Look, the equipment. They've got it. They've been using it for years. Barry Troer. All right, then. But they're not using it on people. That's nonsense. Well, how do you know? Minutes ago, he didn't know the equipment existed. Anyway... There you go. Let me read some of your comments before we close out today's programme. Thanks for listening. Listen, what I said earlier on, don't read too much into it. It's, uh, it's been, you see, it's a unique programme. It's the only one that broadcasts every day for two hours. And it's uh, produced, edited and, and presented by myself, a professional journalist. The last two years have been very difficult for every one of us, but it's been especially difficult for me to be reporting on a single issue for most of that time. And it's driven the love for the gig out of me, or nearly. And it takes a lot of time to produce and present one of these programmes. Ask any journalist. Ask Jean Ann Crowley a great journalist, RTE, radio, television, news, ask her. And when you're fighting off all that stuff all the time, not just the censorship, but also the, the other attacks, you know, there's been a lot of it going on on Twitter in the last couple of weeks, but, but I've not been privy to it because I'm not really on Twitter anymore. But they've been going after Hayden Hewitt because of his association with me. Uh, various Jewish people in the UK have been going after Hayden Hewitt because of his association with me. And of course, to his eternal credit, he's standing up against it. But it's relentless. And the tune-in stuff, and as I said, the PayPal stuff, um, you know, funding the programme is very difficult. I, I depend on you. It's not always great. Uh, advertising is a no-no. I can't do that, despite the huge reach of the programme. So it's just getting on my tits. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. And um, I'm, you know, I am mindful that everything I've ever done, ever, whether it's in the mainstream media or, or elsewhere, I, there's never any warning. Eventually I just go, you know. And, and I fear that. I fear the day will come sometime 
soon, sometime this year, sometime later this year, sometime at the end of a month, I'll say, that's it, I've had enough now. Um, but, but of course, that might not happen. I've never done that. I've been with you for eight years. Before that, I did television. Before that, I did years of radio. I've never done this. I've never just been blatantly honest. It's not easy. And the last two years has been a nightmare. Reporting on this stuff has been very difficult because it affects me as much as it affects you. And I suppose it's the helplessness as well. You know, I hinted at that earlier on, the helplessness and the feeling that the show becomes the thing I would hate it to become, that it just becomes a hangout place for people to to retain their sanity and that it isn't anymore reaching people who are maybe new, maybe agnostic, maybe people who've never heard this stuff before. Because if I find out that the programme is not reaching people who are completely unaware of this, well, I, I would stop in a heartbeat. I'm not interested in being a hangout place for people who want to maintain their sanity for two hours. They don't hold that against me. I'm not being unkind when I say that. The show either reaches people and gives them a, a moment of pause. It gives them some information that they can think about or it doesn't. If it's not doing that, I'm not interested. It's as simple as that. I am not interested in being an echo chamber for anybody. Even if it does work on some level to, you know, where we can all kind of say, well, look, we're not losing our bloody minds. But that's not for me. I'm only interested in speaking to people who think that I'm fucking crazy or that Jim Mars was crazy or that David Icke was crazy. It's those people I want to present information to. If I can't do that, I'm not interested. And moves are afoot to make it impossible for me to reach those people. That's what the tune-in deletion was about, really. Ultimately. And, um, yeah, that's how it is, isn't it? So, but look, largely, most of the time, I'm pretty amiable, I'm pretty happy, I'm pretty upbeat. And, uh, we, we we carry on. I'm back with you on Sunday morning for Sunday Morning Melodies between 10 and 12. If you want to check that out, do. If it's not your thing, don't. Uh, failing joining me on Sunday, we'll speak again on Monday at 5 o'clock UK time where I will have guests and I will have chat and analysis. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for supporting the programme and um, enjoy your weekend. Take care of yourselves and one another, OK? <laughs> Thanks so much to Ramola D. It's everydayconcerned.net. That's our website. Do check it out. It's bye from your BBG. Bye now.